0: I'm Kara Miller. First off today, a remarkable statistic. Back in 2012, a study of high school valedictorians found 7 in 10 of them were women. 7 in 10. That kind of floored me. But it did not floor John Berger, who wrote about that statistic a few years ago when his twin
1: boys were in high school. So they were in this age group, and they had all these female friends who were incredibly smart and seemed to me as a parent to be far more like with it and organized <laughs> than some of the boys I knew who were the same age. So it it didn't really surprise me.
0: Now, the story you're about to hear is not about high school. It's not about valedictorians. But the statistic that about 70% of valedictorians were women... That's going to matter. Now, really, this is a story about dating. It's a story that John Berger started to pursue because he kept hearing the same sorts of anecdotes over and over.
1: My background is not as a dating expert. I mean, I I was a, a writer for Fortune magazine for many years covering super boring stuff like oil and gas and investing. But over time, like I couldn't help but notice and my wife couldn't help but notice that we knew all these single women who had everything going for them, but couldn't find a decent guy. And at the same time, I knew all these guys who, shall we say, had less going for them, (laughs) who didn't seem to have any problems at all.
0: So Berger, who normally wrote about stuff with a heavy math and finance component, began wondering, what was going on? Were other people seeing what he was seeing? His rabbi in Larchmont, New York, told him something along the lines of, Well, people often say to me, do you know any nice boys? I have this great daughter. But the rabbi could not remember folks asking him about nice girls for their son.
1: Initially, before I began working on datanomics, I kind of thought this was just my own circle of friends. And there was something weird or unusual about my friend group or my wife's friend group in which there were all these fabulous women and no fabulous single men. But I think he has kind of a broader take on this. And he realizes that this is not a micro problem. This is a macro problem. So
0: what was going on? Well, remember that valedictorian statistic? Seven out of every 10 valedictorians in the U.S. was a woman back in 2012. Let's come back to that.
1: So for the past 20, 30 years, we've had about one third more women graduate from college than men, and this is kind of spilled over into the post-college dating pool. So if you look at the census data, among marriage-age people, there's about one-third more women than men among the college-educated.
0: This reality that there's about one-third more women than men among the college-educated, that reality started a guy who's generally focused on money to think about a different set of numbers and how they influence us. Berger wrote the book Datanomics in 2015. More recently, he wrote Make Your Move. And they're all about the dating market and how odd it's become. And before we go further here, there are two questions that could be floating around in your brain. First, who cares if the dating market's weird? And second, doesn't this problem we've outlined apply only to heterosexual people who aspire to get married? And that clearly does not describe everybody. And here's a combined answer to both of those questions. A weird dating market for a big chunk of the population affects society at large. It affects people's happiness. It affects how they choose or they don't choose to form families. It affects fertility rates, the economy, and on it goes. John Berger says he has no interest in trying to sell anybody on entering into heterosexual unions, entering into marriage if that's not what they're interested in, but he sure knows a weird market when he sees one.
1: Particularly for heterosexual women who aspire to find a life partner, these imbalanced sex ratios among the college educated and not and non college educated as well, do have a profound impact on the dating markets that they're they're participating in. And it affects people's life choices. I mean, if you if dating is really hard, maybe you're going to prioritize career over family. And if dating is so hard that it takes longer to find a life partner, that might impact how many children you have, or even whether you have any children at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so yeah, I mean, I, I think this, this has implications beyond just the Individuals' dating woes. But again, I don't want to imply that I believe everybody has to get married and live happily ever after.
0: Do you think that the implications of what you're talking about and this mismatch in college educated men and women in terms of numbers, do you think it is changing society? Like, do you think it is changing how people act, how they order their lives? Like, is it having uh, broad waves, do you think?
1: I mean, it's easier for me to answer this anecdotally than kind of statistically, although Mm -hmm. there was a peer research study which came out several years ago which showed that the birth rate among college-educated women has declined something like, I think it was 7% um, over the prior 10 years. And I don't want to attribute this all to the college gender gap because I think economics play a role as well. I mean, I think Mm when... You know some of the economic problems we've had over the past decade, coupled with kind of a widening of economic inequality. I, I mean, I, I think that makes it harder for some people to choose to get married and choose to have children. So I, I think there there are this is kind of a multivariate analysis, so to speak. But just anecdotally, I mean, I have a a good friend who I with whom I used to work at Fortune, who you know, she's a catholic woman who always aspired to get married and have kids and you know after many failed relationships she basically just gave up and had a kid on her own and um her mom the grandmom is kind of a is basically the second parent at this mm-hmm. point um and i think there are a lot of situations like that in which women who can afford to have kids in their own but couldn't find an appropriate life partner um, are basically going it alone and i don't see anything wrong with that but i'm just answering your question
0: so okay so people uh grow up they go to college or they don't and then um and then they go into the into the dating market and as you say obviously some people are looking at same-sex relationships. Other people are looking at heterosexual relationships. Um, But you write, in 2012, there were 5.5 million college-educated women in their 20s versus 4.1 million college-educated men, also in their 20s. 5.5 versus 4.1. If somebody's like, well, you know, five to four, or I don't know, we could round that up to three to two, like how different I you know how different is the, are the numbers five and four, You want to talk about how strange that can make the dating pool?
1: So that's basically a four to three ratio. And, okay. um, and Kara, did you ever play musical chairs as a kid?
0: I have. Yeah, sure.
1: Okay. So so l- let's just pretend that dating was a game of musical chairs. And we're starting okay. out with, um, this is a very large game of musical chairs in which we have um, 40 kids and 30 chairs, right? Okay, and, okay. And um, so in, in this scenario, the players are the women, you know, the, the, okay. the 40 is the women and the chairs are the guys. Size. So okay. you have like forty women and thirty men, and and by the time half of the the women get married, you know, a, a, after twenty of the women get married to twenty of the men, mm-hmm. the ratio goes from forty to thirty to twenty to ten.
2: Right. So you've right. gone okay. from
1: a four to three ratio to a two-to-one ratio. So suddenly, after, after half the women get married, the ratio among the, the remaining singles is two-to-one women-to-men. Once five more of the women get married to the five men, it becomes three-to-one. So, mm-hmm. so what happens is, over time, the imbalance, which starts out as significant but not overwhelming, it becomes mm-hmm. overwhelming because of the way the math works.
0: Now, an underlying assumption here is that women care about finding a college educated man because presumably there are about the same number of men and women in this country. Like presumably yes. at birth. Yes. We start out about 50 50 and that doesn't really change. Um, so am I right to assume women care because if they didn't care? It w- wouldn't matter.
1: Well, I I don't want to just say that women care. Everybody cares. So the data on this shows that college-educated people are very inclined to want to date and marry other college-educated people. And sociologists describe this as assortative mating. But I'm... Always careful to point out that this is not it's not just women who are choosy. Men are actually more choosy about this stuff than women are. And women are are, if you look at the census data, an educated woman is actually more likely to marry a lesser educated man okay. than an educated man is to marry a lesser educated woman. So I, I don't want to make it sound as if women are being too picky. I think All educated people are too choosy, but because there's this gender gap when it comes to higher education, this choosiness kind of disadvantages women more than men, because if you're an educated guy, there's this like insane plethora of fabulous women to choose among.
0: Um, I think you told this story somewhere of um, a woman in college who was really distressed that her college gender ratio was so asymmetrical. There were so many more we- women enrolled in college than, than in her college than men. And she thought, you know, after graduation, I'm done with this. I'm getting out of here. Um, I'm moving to New York. And I read a statistic about the 10001 zip code in Manhattan, Chelsea, for people <laughs> keeping track, where they said 78% of 20 year olds in that zip code 78% female, it just struck me as like, wow, people are like, I've got to get out of where I am. You know where I'll go? New York. New York doesn't seem that great.
1: Yeah. New York is not so great. And and (laughs) Chelsea is a great example that I I think there are probably some zip codes in the Upper West Side where you'd find similar levels of lopsidedness. And, And actually, as I write about in Datanomics, The census data doesn't really fully explain the lopsidedness because one of the things that I learned from researching data-nomics is that cities like New York and Miami and L.A. tend to attract disproportionate numbers of gay men Mm -hmm. but not disproportionate numbers of queer women. Mm -hmm. And as a result, if you're only going by um, by the census data and you're trying to apply... Kind of the census data to hetero dating markets, so to speak, you know, as improbable as it sounds, it makes it seem more female friendly, even though it's not than it actually is. So I, New York City is basically a a terrible dating market for educated women, as is Washington D.C., uh, Miami, and other locales as well.
0: I once talked to uh, an author, not. Not on the record. It was just after, you know, she was doing something else. And and she talked about dating in Manhattan for women. And I remember saying to her, I don't understand. How can there be so many more women? From what you're saying, there's clearly so many more women. How is this possible? And one of the things she said to me was that women come from all over the country thinking, like, this is the place I'm going to make it in publishing or in fashion or whatever it is. Maybe there's more opportunities for women than there are in my small town. And men don't necessarily think that way. They are not drawn to New York in the same numbers.
1: So I I have to say, when I began my research on datanomics, that was exactly the idea I had when I went into it. I mean, I I thought there was something about the job markets in these really fun metropolitan cities like New York or Toronto or London or LA. It's something about these cities that was attracting disproportionate numbers of women because of the opportunities and because of the social life there. But I have to say what I found is that's not really the case. I mean, the if you look at the ratios of college grad women to college grad men, they are more lopsided in West Virginia than they are in New York, in New York City. Interesting. I, I mean, I think okay. what happens, and I, I'm guilty of this myself, is people try to come up with a logical explanation for this, right. and that sounds logical, but that's not actually what's going on.
0: But it sounds like what you're saying is really the numbers in the country in terms of women in college and men in college are just so darn lopsided that it's going to be true in Montana, and it's going to be true in New York City, and it's going to be true in San Francisco. You know, it's just going to be true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and,
1: and I, I should add, it's true in Canada, it's true in France, it's true really? in England. Okay. It, this okay. is not a uniquely American problem. This is a global problem. And, and, and honestly, even in China, where because of the old one-child policy, there are more marriage age men than women overall, there are still more marriage age women than men. Uh, when it comes to the college educated, so really, so, so, yeah, so this is a this is a global phenomenon, and, and it has nothing to do with Title IX or or educational policy or anything like that. I mean, this is a function of what we talked about before, in which young women, older girls, mature intellectually at a faster rate than boys, and thus they do better when it comes to schooling. Hmm.
0: Let's take a quick pause here. We're going to be back right on the other side with more of this conversation. And we're going to talk about how imbalanced gender ratios have changed history. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller. I'm on Twitter. If you ever want to let me know what you're thinking, at Kara E Miller. Be right back. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. You might not think that dating can shape the world or remake the future, but it can. It can change who forms families, how and when they do it, and all sorts of other decisions that essentially lay the groundwork for what America, or any country, is going to look like. And at the root of dating and marriage and partnership, as pretty much anybody knows, is math.
1: Basically, the turning point was the late 1980s, early 1990s, when women overtook men when it came to college education.
0: That's John Berger, who moved a few years ago from covering oil markets to covering dating markets, because what he saw was shocking. And that was a dating market with lots of college-educated women trying to pair up with not so many college-educated men
1: this isn't about public policy or educational policy or anything like that. What happened is that some of the barriers to women succeeding in education and the workplace kind of began to fall. And as a result, you kind of had this natural thing take effect. And and basically, my argument in the first book is that teenage girls uh, mature intellectually and emotionally and socially at a faster rate than teenage boys. Berger is the author of Datanomics, and more recently, Make Your Move. And as a parent of teenage boys, I, honestly, I didn't need to see any academic studies to tell me that this is true. I mean, I mean, I, th- I think most most parents know this. Like a a seventeen year old girl is basically a young adult, right? But a seventeen year old boy is. Basically a moron. I mean, I, I, I'm sorry. So in the brain science shows this, that girls' brains mature at a faster rate than boys' brains. And the net effect of this when it comes to academic achievement is that girls handle schoolwork better than boys do. And that's why girls get better grades in high school. And that's why girls attend college at a higher rate than do boys'.
0: He says it's not that girls are smarter than boys, and he argues that boys often do a great job of catching up, but they may not have caught up by 17 or 18, which is when folks sent off their college applications. And indeed, since Berger noticed this trend several years ago, it's gotten a lot more pronounced. In the 2020-2021 school year, a new record was set, with women making up just about 60% of all college students in the U.S., The gap is there in two-year colleges, and there's a gap in four-year colleges. And it gets even worse during college because more women finish college than men. The Wall Street Journal reported recently, UCLA has seen the percentage of male students drop since 2013, now stands at 41%. During that time, since 2013, the university has added 3,000 new slots for undergrads. How many of those slots went to women? Ninety percent.
1: On some of the like the more elite private college campuses, um, it's more balanced. But that's only because there's this little-known loophole in Title IX, which exempts private undergraduate admissions from the sex discrimination requirements in Title IX. In other words. The Harvards and Amhersts of the world are not bound by Title IX when it comes to undergraduate admissions, and they can favor men over women in order to balance the sex ratios.
0: Berger's interest here isn't college itself, but how it reshapes relationships and family formation. And he argues not only is the gender imbalance in college doing that in spades, but it's not the first time in history that gender imbalances have remade culture. Take, for example, the swing in 60s.
1: Now, if you just look at the raw numbers, there were equal numbers of young women and young men. Okay. But because there was a traditional age gap at first marriage, because older men were marrying younger women, like... It was the, like
0: the cultural convention. Right.
1: Right. So, so maybe you'd have like 23-year-old guys marrying 20-year-old women or 19-year-old okay. women. That age gap at first marriage actually created a gender gap in the dating pool. Because if you, if you think about the baby boom, and you think about how many more babies were born in 1945, the 1944, how many more were born in 1946 than 40, you know, the 45. So basically every one year age cohort from the, the mid 1940s through the 1950s had about three, four five percent more babies born than the one that preceded it. Okay, and the result is you ended up with a a world in which there were fifteen to twenty percent more, say, twenty-year-old women than Mm. twenty-four-year-old men. Okay, okay. And you know, if you read Marcia Gutentag's book *Too Many Women*, which came out in the early nineteen eighties. Her entire argument is that the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 1970s was entirely a byproduct of this lopsided sex ratio created by the baby boom and the traditional age gap at first marriage.
0: Wow, that's so interesting. So you're saying like, you've got all these you know, 20-year-old women, they go looking for 24-year-old guys, but they're like not enough 24-year-old guys for all the 20-year-old women.
1: Yes, exactly. And
0: there's a certain, it sounds like, frustration or people get thinking differently because of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, the other classic example would be kind of the... Sexual revolution that happened in Europe in the 1920s. Uh, I mean, you had millions of young men die in World War One. Yes, yes. And suddenly you had a shortage of young men in, you know, around 1920. And that kind of led to a similar shift in dating behavior and mating behavior.
0: Let's talk for a little bit about um, culture and how, you know, I was talking before about how this can have ripple effects. And you were talking about how it can have ripple effects for what people, how people decide to sort of conduct their lives in terms of childbearing and that kind of thing. You point out some really interesting, like, little cultures, I think about like, for example, Caltech, the California Institute of Technology, (laughs) um, where because it's sort of an artificial little tiny bubble, um, they have a very interesting sort of almost experiment going with with gender ratios. You want to talk about that?
1: Sure. So when I was working on datanomics, I kind of used college campuses as case studies in that like you know, college campuses act as kind of self-contained dating pools, so you can really see how the sex ratios on campus affect dating behavior. And mm-hmm. if you read the book, you'll see I analyzed 35 or 40 schools, ranked them by their sex ratios, and discussed how those ratios affect the dating culture on campus. One of the colleges that I spotlighted in Datanomics was California Institute of Technology, or Caltech. Um, At the time I was looking at Caltech, I think it had a 60-40 ratio of men to women. I believe nowadays it's closer to 55% men, 45% women. But that's still kind of a 10-15% more men than women. So uh, I was actually out out in California on a reporting trip for Make Your Move. Um, through a friend of a friend, I connected with the editor-in-chief of the Caltech student newspaper. And with his help, he arranged kind of a on-campus focus group for me in which, you know, there were like 15, 20 men and women undergrads at Caltech who agreed to speak with me about what dating was like at Caltech. And it was really interesting. And in many ways, the exact opposite of what I had heard about the mostly female campuses, which we can talk about later if you want. Uh, But so, so there was one woman who, you know, in the focus group group who told me that her freshman year, the resident advisor on her hallway uh, told her not to rush into a relationship because she would probably end up marrying the guy. Okay. Um, and so we're talking
0: a, about serious monogamy yeah, Serious here, mom, long-term yeah, stuff. Right. And, okay. and I,
1: I happened to be there, and I think I think you know this focus group happened in late February, like not not so long after Valentine's Day. And okay. I ended up asking these kids, "I'm just curious, what is Valentine's Day like at Caltech?" And this guy, he, he immediately piped up with, "Oh, our house has this really great." Valentine's Day tradition. And, and Caltech is kind of a house system in which kids live in the same dorm all, all four years. Okay. So I asked him, oh, well, what's, what's the tradition? And he said, well, all the guys make handcrafted valentines for the girls. And then we wake up early on Valentine's Day morning to um, make pancakes for the women. Wow, that sounds nice. Which sounds really nice. And, <laughs> it and, and, does. <laughs> and let me just say that it was it was not at all what I heard when I did similar uh, interviews at say Sarah Lawrence College in, in New York, which is seventy percent female to thirty percent wow. male. Wow. Uh, but basically the the gist of it was that the culture was more monogamous, more traditional, I might even say nicer when okay. men were in oversupply, so to speak, um, versus when it was the opposite, when it was kind of a a 60-40 ratio of women to men. And in that kind of an environment, the dating environment seemed coarser, um, less monogamous, more libertine, et cetera.
0: Hmm. So um, why do you you think it is that in – colleges with a lot more women I think you were getting at there's just a lot there's a lot less monogamy people are uh you know going I don't know if it's going on more dates or just like hooking up more um whereas in colleges with a lot more women there's just a much more kind of stable monogamous culture what's going on
1: I, I kind of They're think, both lopsided, right? Yeah, they're both lopsided, but I think that when women are in oversupply, the men kind of set the culture. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and to be honest, this is not a uniquely human phenomenon. I mean, one of the things I explore in nomics is I look at other animal species and how... Um, how lopsided sex ratios in other species affect the mating culture and basically it's the same story that when females are in oversupply the mating culture is vastly different than when the males are in oversupply hmm. so so this is not unique to human beings or to college kids i kind of believe this is a this is almost a, a mammalian phenomenon so to speak However, human beings have consciences and we are we are not fish. We are not, hmm. you know, rabbits, whatever. Um, we should be able to make choices that are uh, friendlier, kinder than those made by animals.
0: Uh, you write about how uh, if, you know, millennial women, some of whom are married, some are not, where they're sort of in that period right now where they may or may not be, it's going to be even more lopsided. The ratios are going to be even more lopsided for Gen Z. Why is that?
1: So the U.S. Department of Education data on college enrollment shows th- this gender gap in higher education expanding over time, and it's just getting really? worse. Yeah. Um, and I don't think there's great data on this yet, but, I, but part of me wonders whether COVID is just going to accelerate this. And, and I'm I am probably speaking too anecdotally but I have twins who are 21 and they have a couple friends who guys who took a year off from college because of covid and they've done pretty well actually in you know in terms of professionally you know job wise mm. on their own and I and I wonder whether they're ever going to go back to college you know they've mm. what the one I'm thinking of in particular is kind of a a computer genius, and you know he's uh, he has no real need to go back to college at this point. He's doing really well on his own, so I, I almost wonder whether the lopsidedness in in college graduation and college enrollment is only going to be accelerated by COVID. But but to your question, the, the reason I believe this is because the U.S. Department of Education data shows that the college gender gap is is you know has been widening, not narrowing.
0: Um. I know this is like out of your area expertise, but why? I mean, like I know we talked at the beginning about you know women uh, or girls really kind of maturing at a faster rate than boys in general. Um, but when is the gap between um, men and women who have gone to college? When is that going to start narrowing? When is that going to at least hit some kind of level and even out? This is just going to keep going? So
1: one of my regrets, I guess, about Datanomics, the first book, is that I, honestly, I was far more interested in solving the boy problem in our schools mm-hmm. than I was in solving the dating problem for mm-hmm. for college grad women. But my solution to this, this education problem is basically to redshirt boys. That all the research shows that if you hold back boys and you have them start first grade at age seven instead of age six, you would really solve the problem entirely. Um, so
0: you're saying a bunch of six-year-old girls go to school with seven-year-old boys. Yes. And, and you know, so on and so forth.
1: Yes. Now, and there's there's one you know academic out there who actually thinks boys should be delayed by two years, not just one. But again, as a parent of older kids who've been through high school, I'm suddenly imagining 19 year old male, you know, high school seniors mm-hmm. dating 15 year old, you know, um, girl sophomores. And I'm like, oh, that's a problem. Yeah. So I, I could see social problems once you got to high school. But in terms of solving the the performance gap, um, I, I do think red shirting boys, delaying when boys start school makes a whole lot of sense.
0: So I think a lot of people think that the coarseness of dating culture, or you know, people hear about like hookup culture in high school or in college, and they think, you know, what is influencing that? It's it's like songs, it's whatever somebody saw on Netflix, it's whatever's out, out there on the internet. Um, I think one of the very interesting things that you conclude is really that that's probably not right. That song lyrics are probably don't have the kind of effect that ratios do.
1: Well, Well, think about how mad some parents were about the lyrics of the Beatles mm-hmm. back in the 1960s. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I mean, I kind of feel like th- this complaint about, about music lyrics or books or nowadays video games, encouraging young people to have sex, I kind of feel like this is a forever problem. Like, mm-hmm. like people have been complaining about this stuff forever. And I and I don't think this. Elvis. Re- Elvis, right? exactly. God he was forbid. Like, it, it, sex. Right, right right, 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 right. Because Elvis's pants were too tight. Right, you right. know, more kids were having sex. Like, I, I really doubt that that was actually. What was going on, and you know, my argument in dynamics is that is that pop culture really isn't what's driving this, and that sex ratios, at least when it comes to college and the hookup ratio in college, that that um, that sex ratios are driving the behavior.
0: Um. Your uh, recent uh, book, uh, Make Your Move, is looking at kind of some of the solutions to uh, the problem that you had laid out. Um, One of them, I'm just going to start with the most obvious one, which we talked about before, which is that there are plenty of men and women out there, but that uh, college-educated women, because there are so many more of them than college-educated men, they should think uh, seriously about dating men who are not college-educated, marrying men who are not college-educated.
1: So, yeah, I mean, I I don't believe that a college degree makes somebody a better wife or a better husband. And obviously, if there are too many women in the college-educated dating pool, that basically means there are going to be too many men in the non-college, dating pool and right, right. and the census data bears that out and are those people frustrated are those are those high school
0: educated men frustrated because they're like where are all the women yeah they're absolutely they frustrated
1: okay. although they probably act out about it in ways that are kind of less uh, endearing and um blue collar guys don't write novels or screenplays or or poems about their dating woes I mean,
0: always they, they probably do sometimes <laughs> but pro- probably not maybe not as often
1: but I, I think that the, the, the way blue collar guys kind of express this, this romantic frustration is definitely different from how white collar women express a parallel frustration. But, you know, I, I will say I, I'm, all, I'm always amazed at, at how many women will tell me these kind of horror stories of dating doctors or lawyers or Wall Street guys and then when I ask him about dating Electricians or cops or firemen—they'll say, "Well, once upon a time, I dated this one guy who was a plumber, and he wasn't so nice." And I'm like, "All right, well, but you dated one of him, and you've dated like eight Wall Street guys who mistreated you. So, you know, like, mean, why, why make a generalization about all blue-collar guys based on one guy? As opposed, I mean, why aren't you making the same generalization about all the Wall Street guys who've mistreated you?" Mm.
0: Um, Another suggestion you have, which I think is interesting, and tell me how this works with ratios, is that women should think about dating younger men, which is flipping the script because in Hollywood and stuff, we have a lot of older men and younger women. But you're like, no, think about it the other way.
1: So, as I said before, I didn't really view myself as like an advice guy. Like I didn't want to be the love doctor when I wrote the first the first book, but I kind of realized in hindsight that it was wrong of me not to offer more hope, more solutions when I wrote the first book and I'm trying to right that wrong with Make Your Move. And You know, when I interviewed women for Make Your Move, one of the things, or single, hetero women who, you know, who had basically had succeeded romantically, one of the things I I heard a lot was that they had a hard time finding guys who were comfortable with their awesomeness, so to speak. Like a lot of guys that they were dating were in some ways intimidated by their educational success, career success, financial success, and this had become kind of a problem in their dating life. But what I discovered is that that when the women I interviewed who were dating or in some cases had married younger men, this issue kind of went away because like, a 27-year-old guy doesn't expect to be on the same level as a 33-year-old woman. So it's easier for him to embrace her, her success as opposed to being intimidated by it. Okay. And and I kind of feel like um, this is one reason why there's an advantage for educated women to kind of expand their dating pool to include younger men. And, and there are some obvious ones as well, as obvious other reasons as well. Like those younger guys are probably better looking and more fit and you know, other other things that go along with that
0: john berger is the author of datanomics how dating became a lopsided numbers game and make your move the new science of dating and why women are in charge john thanks so much for being here
1: Kara, thank you for having me on innovation hub
2: i'm not surprised not everything lasts i've broken my heart so many times i stopped keeping track.
1: Up
0: next, a related conversation from a sociologist whose new research shows, maybe not surprisingly, something weird is going on with marriage in America. That's ahead. I'm Kara Miller. We'll be right
1: back.
0: Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. We've been talking about the strange dating market and how that kind of market can have serious ripples when it comes to altering the future, which is why a recent article in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which was published September 14th, caught my attention.
2: It used to be that first you got married and then you lived together because it wasn't acceptable to live together until you were married. And then you found a job, then you bought a home, then you had a kid.
0: Andrew Churlin is a professor of public policy at Johns Hopkins University.
2: Now some people are doing all those things before they marry. And when they feel like they've really kind of successfully passed all those markers, then they get married to kind of celebrate what they've accomplished.
0: Churlin has long studied marriage and how it's changing. And most recently, which is why he had this piece in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, he has noticed something unexpected. But before we get to that, let's talk about how American society has been reinventing marriage over the last 40-ish years.
2: What's happening is that people at the bottom often don't feel like they have the resources that will support a marriage. They just can't do it. And so they go off and live their family life without marrying, whereas people who are college educated until recently have said, uh, we've got the resources to make it. This is The most desirable way to do our lives, the most secure, and so we'll marry. So it's really since like the 80s and 90s that this gap has shown up between less educated and most educated people.
0: And that gap is a big one. Back in 1970, around 80% of women, and this is whether or not they had gone to college, they got married. By 2014, college-educated women were getting married in roughly the same numbers. About 75% were married by middle age. It had been 80%. But non-college-educated women had diverged radically from their college-educated counterparts. Now, only about half were married by middle age. Something that had been a default, says Turlin, had become a
2: choice. I mean, a majority of all the first children born in this country, among people who don't have a college degree, are outside of marriage. And I think people are doing that who don't have a lot of education because they can't find the kind of jobs, working-class jobs that the previous generation had. But some of them will go ahead and have a kid anyway.
0: But for all the hype that marriage gets, it's really just a piece of paper. You don't have to do anything fancy. You can tie the knot if you want to without all the brouhaha and without making it a big deal. But Churlin argues, no, marriage is a big
2: deal. When people see or think about marriage, they have a pretty high bar in mind for all the things you're supposed to be able to do before you get married. There's no real reason why that would have to be the case, but Americans tend to think you don't get married unless this is something that's really going to last, that you know is going to be good. And until then, you hesitate to do it.
0: A lot of people also do want a poofy dress or a four-layer cake or a string quartet, and they don't really want to get married until they can have the kind of wedding they've been dreaming of, which leads us to Churlin's new research showing that the yawning gap in marriage rates that had opened up between college and non-college-educated Americans, that may be closing.
2: Well, until recently, college-educated young adults, almost all of them waited until after they got married to have a first kid. Now that seems to be changing. You know, a noticeable share, maybe roughly a quarter of college-educated young women, are going to have a first child without marrying. Well, that's new. That didn't happen before. So that's a real change in what the well-educated young adults are doing in terms of how they structure having a kid and getting married and having a family. That's the change I'm seeing.
0: And a quarter is a big uptick from 30 years ago.
2: Well, 30 years ago was four. So 30 years ago, okay, so 4% big did. Now it's 25. You know, a lot of young adults are carrying around a big educational debt from all of the money they borrowed in order to go to college and they're still paying that off and they don't think they have the money they need to come up with that $30,000 or $75,000 for a wedding and so they don't get married. They may not be able to find somebody who they think is gonna be a good earner enough so that they'll commit to marry them. And it's just much more acceptable now to have a child without marrying than it was a couple of generations ago when it was really frowned upon. So it's something you can do now without much shame or embarrassment, that is, go ahead and have a kid without Mary. So if the economics really aren't there, if it's tougher to find somebody, and if it's acceptable to have a kid, uh, now even college-educated people faced with those facts will say, well, maybe I'll go ahead and have that kid.
0: So it's a little bit like what we were talking about before, where you have the situation um, that People say, I know like having a child is important to me, but whatever my metrics are for getting married, whether it's having a bunch of money for a big uh, ceremony and a really fancy dress or whatever this thing is, I just, or meeting the person of my dreams, like I haven't done that yet. So I'm going to do this thing and not do this other thing.
2: You know, the biological clock is ticking for young women. They have a limited number of years in which they'll be very fertile and able to have a kid easily. uh, And they may not be able to find someone who they think is satisfactory. A lot of them may live with the partner that they think they might be with for the rest of their lives, but not marry them until they're really sure. Now, some of those living together relationships will have a kid. Maybe there's a family planning accident. Maybe the woman feels like she should go ahead even if she doesn't want to marry the guy. So you see in this group of college-educated women who are having kids outside of marriage, about half of them are actually living with the person who they got pregnant with. Another half, however, are by themselves and just doing it without living with somebody.
0: That's interesting. So you've got some people maybe going the route of like IVF or, you know, really saying I'm going to do this on my own. But then you've got other people who just for some reason, they're having the kid, but they're just not at the place where they want to marry that person, even though there is a person in the picture.
2: They're thinking to themselves, having a kid is not an option. It's necessary. Okay. I must have a kid in my life. I really want to do that. Marriage, however, while it would be nice, I don't care that much about it. It's having a kid that I must do. I'm not going to put that off forever.
0: Um, We talked to John Berger about this incredibly lopsided dating market when it comes to college educated men and women, and it's getting more lopsided. 2020, 2021 was a record year. It hit about 60, 40 in terms of enrollment in colleges and universities in this country, women being at the 60 and men being at the 40, and it just seems to be getting uh, worse. Um, What? impact do you think that has? Because that's a big societal change. Boy, if we went back to the 50s or 60s, clearly, like men. I mean, there are so many schools women couldn't even go to.
2: Well, look, it it means that some college-educated women are not going to find college-educated men to marry. If they want to get married, some of them are going to have to marry men who don't have a college degree. Now, what if you think that guy is a decent person and you like him, but you don't really know if he's going to be able to get a good job and support you and your children for the next 40 years, maybe you'd hesitate to marry that guy. But maybe you'd live with him. Maybe you'd move in together and just see. And some of those living together relationships might lead to a child even before they they get married. And uh, then you might decide after the first child whether you get married or not. In fact, I'm finding that half of the college-educated women who have a child outside of marriage, if they go on to have a second kid, half of them are married by the time they have the second kid.
0: They are married,
2: okay. They are married. It looks like it's as if that your life looks like college degree, child, then marriage, <laughs> rather than marriage before children. Something you see in Europe, but we haven't seen that much among well-educated people here.
0: Um, You know, if somebody's listening and thinking, dating's interesting, marriage is interesting, um, but how do those things impact the society in which we live? Like, How big a deal could this be? What would you say?
2: I would say for just talking about adults, it's not necessarily such a big deal. You know, why is it so awful if people have a child before marrying and then half of them get married afterwards? If we care about kids, I think we have to think a bit, though, about whether we're creating stable environments for kids. I think children need stability, stability of parents, of caretakers. And if this change means that there's going to be more disruption, more parents moving in and out of the home, more single parents trying to do the best they can, it may not be in the best interests of kids that this has happened. Now, I'm not saying it's necessarily a problem. I don't think we know the answers to this yet. But... If there's a problem, it's because we as a public care about the raising of the next generation. If this is not causing an impact for kids, you know, who really cares whether college-educated adults marry at a certain time or not? So that's why I'm interested in this from a public policy sense. I just want to figure out what does this mean for the next generation, the one that's looking up at their parents doing all this stuff? Are they getting what they need?
0: Well, it seems too that even if you do create a very uh, stable home, and I'm sure many of pe- many people who are having kids, whether it's in or outside of marriage, are creating stable homes. It it seems to me too that like it's very interesting when families start to look different. Like, what if your family is you and the grandparents, like the the mom and the grandma? That might be a very stable home. It might be a very wealthy home. But it's a different kind of, like, it's a change in society and uh, the way things look and what people are used to seeing.
2: It's a big change. And we have to kind of figure out what it really means. There are lots of grandparents taking care of grandchildren, and uh, that's become much more common, and that's great when it works well. On the other hand, there are a lot of grandparents who are at a stage of their life where they weren't expecting to be helping take care Mm -hmm. of grandchildren, and they may not be completely healthy, or they may want to do other things. So we have to figure out how well that works, too. So we're seeing new alternatives that are not necessarily a big social problem, but you're right that they're a big change. And I think we have to take a hard look and think carefully about what they mean.
0: Andrew Chirlin is professor of public policy at Johns Hopkins University. Andrew, thanks so much.
2: You're very welcome.
0: And we've got more about the studies that we've cited on our website, innovationhub.org, including Andrew Churlin's new findings on the waning popularity of marriage for college-educated Americans. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Zonger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub.
1: PRX.